I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. On the last day of shooting, Rue did this kind of speech saying, like, you know, you are going to change people's lives. This is really, you have a huge privilege and you're about to enter a new part of your lives and your careers. And the last thing he said was, don't fucking look in the comments. Welcome to a new episode of Chosen Family. I'm Trana Winter. And I'm Thomas LeBlanc. That was Reese Nicholson. You just heard the Australian comedian who's a judge on RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under. We're getting closer and closer to the Drag Race <laughs> Inner Sanctum, and we are taking you there with us. Also on the show today, we have a very special obsession segment. We have invited Tom Capalonga. He is the curator of the Christopher Street Reader Instagram account, which I'm obsessed with. And he is going to give us a sort of crash course on queer pop culture history. We are finally waking up from this long pandemic nightmare. One big symbol of this is the curfew that's been lifted in Montreal, where we live. So for the last five months, we've had a curfew for most of the time. It was 8 p.m. 8 p.m. Like when was the last time you had to be home by 8 p.m.? Even when I was 12, I was allowed to stay out later than 8. So now that's over and people have been partying. Um, The curfew was lifted on Friday. People were in parks all over the city looking at their phones or their watches, counting down to 9.30. And then like at 9.30, like on the dot, people in parks all over the city were cheering. I heard fireworks. I heard fireworks too that night. What did you do on Friday night? I stayed home. (laughs) I don't even think I realized when 930 came around, but there is a basketball court um, across the street from my apartment. And that first night I could hear people still playing basketball at like 11 o'clock at night. And I was like, I missed the curfew already. (laughs) But yeah, so now everyone seems like they're ready to have a good time. I definitely am not. You know, there were so many times during these last 14 months where I was like, I will be the first one on the dance floor. (laughs) You've said it on this show multiple times. I can't wait. And it's and I am excited for that moment. But I think this process of getting back to a life, a social life again, is going to be a lot more of a gradual process Mm -hmm. than Mm -hmm. I realized. I don't know, like as much as we've been grieving during the pandemic, our life before, I think people now are grieving their pandemic, their pandemic life and the quiet, you know, and I think 
for a lot of us, like television and streaming shows. And I don't think I'll ever watch this much television again ever in my life. Exactly. I never thought I'd watch this much drag race <laughs> in my life. <laughs> And I mean, so, I mean, everyone's saying it, but we have had so many pandemic seasons. Like and se I remember at the beginning of the pandemic when we were still in season 12, right? Season yes. 12 was ending just as the pandemic yeah. was starting. GG Crystal Method. Right. And Jada Essence Hall. I didn't think we were going to get any Drag Race over the last year, let alone Drag Race Season 13, Drag Race UK Season 2, Drag Race Holland, Spain, Canada. And of course, most recently, Drag Race Down Under. And it's so, still so repetitive. And there's in that repetitiveness, there's something so quiet and calm to be. Especially in a world that feels so upside down and we do not know what's next. It's nice to know that we can watch Drag Race and know exactly what we're getting. Reese Nicholson is our guest today on the show. Uh, in addition to being the guest judge on RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under, Reese is a hilarious comedian. He's been doing comedy for over 10 years. He's only 31. He truly is brilliant. You should watch his Netflix special live at the Athenaeum. I love his look. He's always dressed in a dapper suit, very slick, very well tailored. He has a full head of red hair. So he looks like the love child of Conan O'Brien and Tilda Swinton. I was just so happy to get the chance to talk to Reese and spend some time in his company and find out about what it's like to have every queer person's dream job. Well, then you should fit right in. And the lovely and laughable Reese Nicholson. Welcome to the family, Reese. Well, thank you so much, but I'm confused. Do I call you father or mother? Call me the one who signs your checks. Oh, so I call you daddy. <laughs> I have no idea how I got the job. <laughs> Rue has, like, quite a strong point of view on, I think, what judges are and stuff. I think he likes to hire people who aren't famous yet. Because I think sometimes if, you, if they were to hire, like, a very famous person, you kind of get distracted by the fact that they're a very famous person. Right. That makes sense. And where, where does Graham Norton fall in this, in this well, theory? This is, this is where the thoughts <laughs> fall through. Yeah, you're right. International different things. Look, I'm just trying to find a reason that I got, I have no idea how. Because you're good. Because you're really good. And so you had never met Michelle Visage before walking in that, walking on that set? The first time I ever met her, we were both in quarantine and she was, she FaceTimed me and she was doing her makeup for a press day. And so I got to watch like, Michelle Visage appear in front of me, wow. like a like a visage, <laughs> and she does her and she does her own makeup. Yeah, well, this I like it was just a press day and we were in quarantine. Okay, um, okay, okay. And uh, yeah, and then we've become pretty fast buddies. I met Rue for the first time on set, and like I've said it in press before, but literally the first thing he said to me was like, "Welcome to the family," and it's like flooded my basement. Like, <laughs> really, really did the job, and it is. Finding out that it is not as produced, like, you know, we all have like these, I was, a, I, you know, I was one of the fans. I have like all these conspiracy theories about things. And then when you're actually in the room watching a, like watching a lip sync for your life, it is like, oh no, it's all, it's all above board. Like that was like shocking to me that there is like, it's all real. So you're telling me that like Rue actually decides after the lip sync who like. It, Everything you see in the wow. last. Few, like, you know, from runway onwards is 
the way it's filmed. How it goes. Yeah. So the shocking moment where Art Simone lost that lip sync was real. It because it's been the shock of the season I so far. So basically when... So for people who haven't seen Drag Race Down Under, there's a queen who was considered, I mean, a front runner, someone who could win the season. And I think it was the second episode. She mm-hmm. kind of bombed. She did bomb on, on, on Snatch Game. Yeah. Her runway look was great. But how did you react being there... Kind of experiencing this moment that all of us watching on TV were like, I can't believe it. It was the same. Like, as in, Rue is talking to someone. Like, there's someone in a booth that right. they're, they're discussing God. She speaks, she speaks, he speaks to God. Yes. Right. So, I never know what's going to happen. We do our deliberations. That's all real. We film for maybe half an hour of the three of us or, or the judges talking. And then the queens come back. And I never know what's going to happen. So, it was like, What? And, like, it wasn't out of, like, I don't think it should have happened. It was out of, like, when you're inside the show, you're watching the show happen as well. That's why I don't say much for the first two episodes because (laughs) I was sitting the whole time just going, oh, my God, I'm on Drag Race? But And that's the weird thing as well is, like, when shocking things happen on the show, like the other franchises, as a fan, you're like, this is crazy, but also, ooh, this is good and then you're seeing it in real life and it's like this is really hard like and I think that's that's the thing that you know there's a lot of conversations about the the fan base of uh not just this show but other it's a very our generation thing of access to the internet and like boy howdy there's a lot of um straight white 14 year old girls that must be tv producers <laughs> that really know how that works and how that job works and um and what they should have done and who they should have brought back and how it should have been done anyway i mean but the drag race fandom is particularly intense i would say um you know judges across all the different franchises have been on the receiving end of really intense criticism. A lot of the queens have received death threats from unhappy viewers that I guess just get way too emotionally involved. Um, So far, judging Drag Race Down Under, what has been your experience with the audience? On the last day of shooting, Rue... um, did this kind of speech uh, that felt from the hip, like felt kind of off off the dome, but was saying like, you know, you are going to change people's lives. This is really, you have a huge privilege and you're about to enter a new part of your lives and your careers. And the last thing he said was, don't fucking look in the comments. Right. And he was like, okay, bye. Like that, that was basically just like, bye everyone. Have a good time. Don't ruin your lives looking at yourselves on the internet. Which, I, But I think it really is like a true thing. Like it's, there's just, we live in like a, a fun time of people just thinking they're experts of everything. It's just a really interesting dynamic. Maybe you can't answer this, but, you know, especially over the last couple of years, I feel like RuPaul, who has done so much for this community, has also become sort of a polarizing figure. You know, there are people who really look at RuPaul as being the spiritual guru, but then there are people who look at RuPaul as being this sort of egotistical maniac. And yeah, I'm just curious, you know, you get the chance to sit next to this icon. What was your impression of them? When, when you get a job like this, you, you, I would have been fine for it being, you know, we talk for three minutes a day, we do the show and then she's gone and we never really talk about, but no, like a 
deeply warm, <laughs> deep, like this is the experience that I got was like super funny, super, this is what like, I, I always want to like grab people and shake them and like tell them, but like he's really silly and like dumb. Like as in, <laughs> she's, <laughs> and I don't even know if this is the wrong thing to say, but she's a regular person who exists in the right. world. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. uh, yeah, for sure. Like for sure. the, I think almost the fan base as well and the, and the, and the show created this kind of ethereal being and like, you know, you can't, Rue is undeniably an icon and you can't. Yeah. You can't be aware of that, I don't think. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, it would be very strange to be like, well, I'm going to become an icon and now I am one. <laughs> uh, but I think it is it is people around you that do kind of, you know, I, I am friends with Hannah Gadsby and yeah. I, don't, I don't think she was out to, she was literally out to quit her job. And yeah. by doing that has uh, shifted the way comedy <laughs> is thought. And uh, But it is around everyone around Hannah that's kind of going, by the way, she's an icon. By the way, she's an icon. Hannah is the last person to be doing that. And I think it's a similar situation there, if that makes sense. Let's let's pivot to comedy. Uh, you mentioned Hannah. I mean, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are fans of at least Nanette and maybe mm-hmm. also Douglas, the following Netflix special. But you're friends. So you came up, I'm guessing, in the same scene, in the same community. What's your relationship with uh, with Hannah and like being with her and being in her her presence through the through Is, those years? Well, so there's another um, Hannah and there's another comedian called Zoe Coombs Ma. And both of them were pretty in probably ways that they don't even understand, but in my, I, when I first started, I wanted to be like a, sh- a pretty shocking comedian. That was, I feel like a lot of people go through the stages and especially if you're a, a queer comedian, sometimes I definitely was doing material for straight people. And then at about year three of doing that, I decided uh, I don't like my act at all. Like any of it. I hate it all. And it was Zoe and uh, to some point Hannah as well, that both were like, we'll stop doing it. Like literally like just flat out with like, yeah, because you're right, it's not good and you should stop doing it and start again. And because there was something in them though that they were very nice. Like I kind of remember Hannah's always was when I was very young, a very young open micer, she was really nice to me for no reason. Like as in my, our acts couldn't be more different and like opposite to each other. She was kind of trying to be like, no, I'm a queer person and we're like this. And I was kind of being very like, I'm whatever you want me to be audience. Right. Do you want me to be, the, do you know what I mean? Like, and I feel like a lot of queer acts go through that. In your Netflix special, actually, you talk about being bullied. Yeah. Like, you know, and you something, it's an experience that you've talked about. Um, would you make a connection between those two? Like the straight people bullying you, I'm assuming they were straight and maybe the people in the, on, you know, the audience. Absolutely. And it's, a, it's such a cliche that I feel like we all go through it. Like in some level of because it is it is a struggle I think to if you are a member of a community and you work in this business uh, if to be making work for your community but the, by the same thing you also don't want to be only performing for your community because at a certain point that you're just talking to an echo chamber at that point. Oh, the good old echo chamber. When Reese mentioned that, I felt like 
I don't know if I want to speak to straight people, to be honest. Like, it's a lot <laughs> of work. What I'm interested in is like niche queer stuff. Right. Well, Reese mentioned that idea of performing in front of straight audiences and having to say right off the bat that he's gay. When I am performing in front of straight audiences, I need to acknowledge my transness right away because otherwise they're just confused and not listening and maybe even freaked out. Like, I remember the worst experience that I ever had performing at a straight club. This late show that I was doing, the audience was only straight men. That's not your target. I'm sorry, this is not your target. terrified. (laughs) And at this particular time, it was Grand Prix, which is this like... It's Formula One racing. Wow, it's like a straight high holiday. Yeah, exactly. And during Grand Prix is like when all the douchebags of the world come to Montreal and descend. Oh, God. And I got up to do my set very early on in my set. Someone yelled faggot at me from the back of the room. And, you know... It was a split second decision, but there was this part of me that instantly felt 12 years old again. And like, I'm just going to ignore this and keep going. But then there was this other part of me that was like, I'm not 12 years old anymore. This is my house. Fuck you. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I blasted the guy and they removed him from the club. But I was like shaking. But that night, all of the other comedians who were on the show, who were all straight guys, really stood up for me. And they were the ones that like got him out of the club. And so sometimes when you do step out of your echo chamber and out of your comfort zone, you can be surprised at the allyship that's on the other side. I mean, through performing, like I have an army of like straight cis women who are (laughs) ready to fight to the death for me. Your fans. My biggest demographic (laughs) is straight cis women aged 24 to 39. Mm -hmm. Those are my people. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Certainty. <laughs> I'll leave you on this though. Like I, I, I've been uh, with the same man for, for eight years now. I've got a fiance, and we're getting to the point where we're not happy to bicker and argue amongst ourselves in our own private home. I've uh, decided to take that shit on the road. So we've <laughs> got a lot of weekends away. He wanted to go camping last year, and I did not want to go camping. But relationships, much like worshiping Satan, are about sacrifices. <laughs> Something that you did in 2016 that I love so much. Um, So when gay marriage was still illegal in Australia. Two weeks ago. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Not two weeks ago, but not long. But not long. That's true. Um, You married your comedy friend, Zoe Coombs-Marr, fellow comedian and lesbian, as you mentioned earlier. You married her on stage, sort of calling it Melbourne's first gay marriage. And of course, as if that wasn't gay enough, Hannah Gadsby emceed the wedding. Um, I thought like that was such an incredible statement. And I'm wondering if you can sort of tell that story and walk us through the inspiration and how you managed to pull that off. 
the story is we were in uh, Edinburgh Fringe and she used to do this character called Dave, which is kind of this drag king. It's like the worst male open mic comedian is basically the show. And she does an hour show as Dave. Zoe is stand up, but she's also she is a playwright and kind of does these pretty bonkers uh live shows with and kind of veering on performance art like she loves fake blood she loves fake vomit she loves explosions like how can i make this hour of comedy be uh 4d uh we were sitting backstage and she had just done dave and i was in like a nice crisp white suit and she uh she was as dave covered in had been on stage and now was covered in fake vomit and fake blood and we were talking we walked past a mirror and she and I said, oh, we look like the top of like the grimmest gay wedding cake in the world. Anyways, we go and get drunk. The next day we're having brunch together and she had been laying in bed that night thinking and she was like, I think we should get married. And I was like eating like eggs going, what? Uh, this doesn't feel right. Uh, and she was like, no, no, I think we should get be the first gay marriage in Australia. And I think it would be, and we should do it like a big play and blah, blah, and actually, and get Hannah involved and blah. And we were like, yeah, let's pitch to the festival. And sometimes you pitch things like this and they go like, that's an insane idea. Well, I'm not going to do that. But they were like, yes, 100%. And we'll make it a charity event and uh, we'll get, we'll put all of our work into it as much as, but let's make it a big thing. But so we said to Hannah, Hey, would you mind being the, like, MC of this wedding and just jot down if you want to do like a little speech at the top of why we're doing it. And, you know, I think you're really articulate and you'd perfectly. And then she did this like 15 minute speech. It's online that it's kind of, I'm not saying this turned into Nanette, but there's whole chunks that she wrote for it that are now in Nanette, like that were kind of about just the, by the kind of structural violence. (laughs) Towards the queer community. Zoe and Reese first met when they were flaunting their lifestyle at the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. <laughs> because before they met, Zoe and Reese were gay. <laughs> and they continued to be gay, and they will continue pretty much forever to be that because that's how it works. Whether or not. <laughs> anyone else acknowledges it because uh, being gay is not a choice and even though being gay is not a choice that does not mean that gay people don't like choice (laughs) there was like 500 people there and it was a bit of a media storm for like a couple days in australia like what it was and a, a few kind of conservative politicians vaguely got involved to be like this is not right and blah 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 um but it it did you know when you're doing a show and it just feels like you're doing something. A stand-up comedian, sometimes, especially in Australia, sometimes you're just shouting at a wall. Like it just doesn't. And it, you know what I mean. And sometimes you'll say something on Twitter, and there'll always be someone that's like, "Stick to your day." Like, why are you? You're just a comedian. Stop talking about this. But it's like we did like a piece of comedy that really potentially changed people's points of view about gay marriage in Australia. Like it was such a kind of media storm about it that it and it, it just felt really incredible to be part of something like that because at the moment what we are doing in this in this country is saying to all children that it is okay to exclude a minority that it is okay to be a bully through their union filled with love and respect from within and without 
What Zoe and Reese would like to say to all children is that being inclusive is just as important as being included. Um, so I just have one last question for you. Um, as Thomas mentioned before, Australia has given us so much incredible queer culture. Priscilla, Muriel's Wedding, Savage Garden. Um, <laughs> but for me, and I'm sure that this annoys Australians because whenever someone tells me they're from Australia, I'm like, oh my God, land of the Minogues. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering for you as an Australian, what is your relationship to them? And have you ever met either of them? Have I? We're, we're Twitter friends, at least. She follows me on Instagram and Twitter. Um, but I think that was just, you know, you have to follow the person that you work in the office with. Um, <laughs> the I remember seeing years ago when I was a kid, Kylie Minogue was on Letterman. And it was kind of like, I think he mispronounced her name or something. And it dawned on me as like a tiny, gay, <laughs> 11-year-old, like, you mean not everyone knows about Kylie Minogue? <laughs> like, she's just so big in Australia. And so, but in the same way, I don't know if you feel the same about this. We know nothing about her. What do we well, know doesn't about she live in? Doesn't she live in London? Yeah, we know that. I need 10 more facts yeah, from yeah. you. There's no, on the front of tabloids in Australia, there's no, like, Kylie Minogue. Is she voting conservative? Like, there's no, like, no one's yeah. going through her garbage. Well, People in a way, like, she's kind of like Dolly Parton of the pop world in the sense that she's managed to maintain a pretty neutral and universal appeal that's still really uplifting. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's, yeah. I've never thought that Kylie Minogue is Dolly Parton, but she is. She's a version of it, I think, for sure. Yeah. Kylie Land. Kylie yes. Oh my God, that's park. what we need in Melbourne. <laughs> oh my God. And you walk in through like a big ass. Like yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite Kylie song? See, again, bring it back to RuPaul asked me this exact question and I panicked. <laughs> um, because because he's like because again we're just like we're all trying to get to know each other like when he was like oh what's your favorite Kylie Minogue song and I panicked and I I do think this is true though I really like slow yeah like yeah yeah and he went mm, okay <laughs> and he was like and, and he said it's definitely understated and I was like okay. It must be exhausting being Kylie Minogue. Like every time they record a song, it's like, okay, and we're going to have like a thousand backup singers and you're going to be dancing the whole time because this is in fact a dance song. (laughs) Can we do a song called Slow? Is that all right? (laughs) Where I just kind of lay down and hot men dive around me. So hot. Yeah. So hot. Reese, thank you so much for coming on to Chosen Family. Oh, of course. I, I feel like I just rambled, but I'm sure it'll edit up a treat. <laughs> <laughs> A big thank you to Reese Nicholson for taking the time to talk with us and giving us all of that juicy drag race insider info. You can catch Reese's comedy special live at the Athenaeum on Netflix and Drag Race Down Under is currently streaming on Crave in Canada. (laughs) 
like every white gay guy in his 30s this summer, I'm obsessed with Montero. Lil Nas X, call me by your name. I mean, this song, to go to experience Pride Month with the biggest song in the world being a <laughs> horny sex-positive anthem by this black gay rapper. I mean, who's 20. We have reached that moment. And hearing the song on commercial radio is to me such a moment. Like I was driving here because, yes, I do drive now (laughs) in my mother's car listening to commercial radio. Um, And this like straight woman host she was like i'm obsessed with this song this is montero by lil Nas x and i was like wow we have finally arrived Um, we have especially you know growing up in a culture which we've spoken about before being so heteronormative when we were kids we did not have any out pop stars reaching number one Mm-hmm. On the Billboard chart, I mean, this is really a <laughs> With moment. a song about gay sex, exactly. It's a fully a song about being horny and 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 having gay sex. My fear through all of this, and as much as I appreciate this, is that people forget what it took to get to this moment. Right. How we got to be in 2021 during Pride Month to have this like massive hit. So the good news is that today we have a segment to educate all the 12 year olds and the Gen Zs listening about the importance of the the pioneers and the and the the icons that came before Lil Nas X. Exactly. So today we've brought in Tom Capalonga. He's the curator behind the Instagram account, the Christopher Street Reader, which is basically this incredible archive of images and videos of queer icons, queer culture moments, and also just queer life, in particular in New York City through the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. You curated uh, the best moments, your favorite moments from the account? Exactly. So what I decided to do was go through the Christopher Street Reader Instagram account, pull moments that I really loved and that I think we need to revisit. And I thought it would be fun to replay these clips for Tom and get his perspective on them and understand their significance. So we're going to start this game right now with a clip of Cher back in 1991 on a UK talk show. I don't like. She's mean, and I, I don't like that. I mean, I remember having her over to my house a couple of times because Sean and I were friends, and she just was so rude to everybody. It seems to me that she's got so much that she doesn't have to act the way that she acts like a, a spoiled brat all the time, and it seems to me when you reach the kind of acclaim that she's reached and can do whatever you want to do, you should be a little bit more magnanimous and a little bit less of a... So, Tom, can you tell us who Cher was talking about? Cher was talking about Madonna herself in this clip. 
And do you think Cher got it right? <laughs> I think Cher told the a hundred percent truth about Madonna in that clip, and that's why I think it's so funny about it is how, how few fucks she gives about um, about telling the truth about Madonna there from her own experience too, which I think is is really brilliant. And I think it shows that Cher. I mean, to me, what Cher has that Madonna does not is a sense of humor about yes. herself and her work. And um, I think Madonna is so driven and so ambitious, but it also covers up a lot of insecurity and you know about being you know just like a simple girl from Michigan. And it comes through in her work a lot, the extent to which she wants to be taken seriously. And um, I think that also translates to her treating people like shit throughout her career, which is unfortunate, but um, I think it's fun to appreciate our icons for all of their flaws too. But what sort of drives me crazy is that Madonna really believes that she has a great sense of humor. Like she <laughs> thinks she's funny. She thinks she's very funny and it's so sad. It's <laughs> um, How do you reconcile the Madonna that we grew up with that meant so much to us that shaped us with by, the- By the way, Madonna would love that we're making this share clip about her. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, but I'm curious, I find it's a hard time to be a Madonna fan and I'm I'm just curious how you read where she's at right now and how you reconcile with that, with the Madonna that you grew up with. You know, I think it's hard once you become an, an icon and a, and a certain amount of wealth you accumulate and you become disconnected from what it was that made you able to create work that really resonated people in the first place. And I think she tries and I think there's a lot of good intentions in her, you know, traveling the world and putting forth the message of acceptance and, and equality and all that. But I think that her, um, inability to look back and be cheeky about herself or to reference herself. I question her sometimes. It's a very specific experience. I think the three of us share that yeah. having watched just Truth or Dare and the Blonde Ambition Tour um, a video yeah. as children is a very specific education. And it really made us, I feel... <laughs> And who we are today. I remember in my, I had my own little TV and VCR in my room when I was a kid around that same time. And I, the video, like the local video store up the street had the girly show VHS. And I, my mom didn't know what it was um, and rented it for me. And I remember being in my room alone because it's such a sexually provocative show. There's like <laughs> full on nudity. There's an orgy. And I was just watching this alone in my room as like an eight year old, just praying that my mom wouldn't walk in. And I remember feeling like I should not be watching that. Um, get into the next one. Um, so we're going to this clip of one of the most definitive New Yorkers um, in interview the one and only Fran Lebowitz, circa 1981. I don't think that, I have no nostalgia. You know, I don't think that any other time was better than this time. Um, and I think this time is dreadful. Uh, and I think it will only get worse. Well, its dreadfulness provides you with a lot of fuel. Um, are there other eras that you think would lend themselves to your kind of writing? Maybe the 18th century when so many people were satirical? Almost any era. I mean, I, I think it doesn't matter. There's always an enormous amount of things to be annoyed at, no matter when you live. You could live in the 16th century, you could live now, you could live 400 years from now. I'm sure that, you know, that there are plenty of things to be annoyed about. I don't think it matters, really. Who asks a question like that? 
<laughs> First of all, I watched more of that interview um, because when I was scouring your Instagram page, I had to then go find the clips on YouTube so that we could extract the audio. So I watched more of that interview. Tom, I need to know, do you think Fran and that interview were hooked up? There was certainly some sexual tension. I picked up on that as well. And also that that um, the interviewer's accent, which is very kind of like a boarding school-y accent, I found to be um, a little grating. But Fran is so irreverent and just so, I mean, her attitude is so New York and just, I, I love how her, she kind of never gives her what she wants in her answers. I think it's very playful and fun. Sometimes I feel a little bit attacked by Fran. And even in that clip we just heard, she starts off by saying, I am not a nostalgic person. And Fran sort of has this hatred about nostalgia. Um, Do you think you're a nostalgic person, Tom? I don't know. It's interesting because on its face, obviously, my page is this kind of a celebration of nostalgia. But I think that there is a way in which nostalgia can be a negative force because I don't want to make people think that I'm pining for some time that I believe to be better than now. Um, I think that's a dangerous thing to do. And I think that also, I mean, I, I can't pine for 1978 because I wasn't there. So, right. <laughs> um, but I think I, and that's why I posted, I think it's very cheeky of Fran. And I think uh, I wanted to just kind of strike a chord where, you know, I'm not too precious about nostalgia. I wanted people to know that like I, I can wink at, I think everything is worth winking at the audience for. And I, I think that's what that clip I was trying to do. So let's play this clip from one of my favorites, who is a woman who I think it's been a long time since she's known what exactly is going on, but she always shows up anyway. Liza Minnelli. One night I went to see a a show. And suddenly in the second act, they started to sing this song. And I punched the person I was with and I said, this is, this is what I mean. This is the song I'm talking about. This song could be the the song for the fight, for the cure, for the cure for AIDS. Oh, Liza. Oh, Liza. I think that in recent years, Liza has become, you know, not intentionally, I believe, but a caricature of herself. Um, And she's sort of an easy target for us to make fun of. But Liza was in the thick of the AIDS crisis and lost so many of her closest friends. Yeah, I mean, Liza to me is she's kind of like a a queen of compassion. And I think that she is just um, she's really walked the walk and, and lived, you know, the disco year. I mean, you know, she's she's in so many ways, like an emblem of so much of the queer experience in the 20th century by virtue of her parentage and the life that she lived and her charisma and how unique she is. And, um, I love that clip because I think, you know, this is 19, that's from 1997. It's, you know, 11, it's 10 30 AM in America on the Rosie O'Donnell show. And there's Liza giving like a extemporaneous monologue about her frustration over the AIDS crisis. That's pretty fabulous. I think, you know, and I think what I, what's so interesting about that clip is like we have so much reverence for celebrity and in particular the divas that we sort of identify or connect with and when it comes to moments of chaos um or you know the AIDS crisis or whatever crisis and obviously right now with everything going on who are the divas that are going to come through for us (laughs) Tom do you hold your divas to that sort of standard like do you does your vision of an icon shift in terms of 
how they show up and what they show up for? Yeah, I mean, I think now these days we're much more we have so much more access to celebrities that it's odd if they don't put themselves out there and and make their voice heard about issues, especially ones as serious as now. So I do think that um, I mean, I don't have any expectations for my divas to be necessarily like well informed. I think (laughs) (laughs) I think that if you expect your celebrities to be like, uh, you know, a good source of of who, what, where, when and why, that's kind of a losing proposition. But I do think that. Um, I think that it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a human thing to want to just lend your voice and to let people know, and and people want, people see themselves more than ever, I think, in celebrities in all of their mundanity and all their imperfectness. So I think it's better to say something than to say nothing. I think it would be so, it, it, it would feel cruel almost to, to not acknowledge the suffering of the people that are essentially paying your bills and, uh, you know, going to your concerts and all that stuff. Yeah. So we're going to shift gears a little bit and sort of enter the world of the club kids. Hi, I just want to know, do you people dress like this during the day or is it strictly just at night? Suzanne? Do you dress this way during the daytime? I'm very often in the vacant platforms. I may wear a long uh, bit of things on my legs here, but yeah. I mean, I, I, I do dress. Dressing to me is a way of life. It's and, and RuPaul, do you dress that I way? During the day, but I want to make the point that you're, bo- <laughs> you're born naked and the rest is drag, you know? As- <laughs> in the three-piece suits over there. I look terrible in a three-piece suit, but it's drag. I mean, everything you wear, this this body you have is a vessel, and you're bigger. It's bigger now, than the now both you of say us. You s- we, we don't, I'm not sure. Okay, so that was... <laughs> we have it on tape. That was Suzanne Barge and RuPaul again on the Geraldo show in 1990. So This it's been was at least, not the first time she was saying that. No, but we at least know that it's been... At the very least, 30 years of saying that line. I mean, the consistency of messaging works, you know? (laughs) I'm curious about what your read is on RuPaul, especially from that like 1990 clip to the Ru that we know today. I mean, I think that Rue is, you know, like many of these other people we're talking about is a boomer above all. And our expectations of them need to be kept in check because, you know, Rue was a revolutionary and their message in that clip, the, the fact that it's not changed much since then speaks to how cutting edge it was then, but also speaks to the fact that maybe it doesn't quite fit the times in the same way now how things have advanced. Um, so I wish Rue would do better and I wish Rue would um, kind of acknowledge the full spectrum of gender identity and and make room for it on that show, which I think is otherwise a really positive force. Um, but again, I think that, you know, we can only expect so much from our baby boomer faves. They're limited. <laughs> you know, so much of um, Drag Race and what RuPaul has created within that universe is also a demonstration of how much of the language that we use within queer community comes from, you know, the very famous ball scene that was documented in Paris is Burning, that the language that so many white queer people use came from black people and the next clip is Pepper LaBeja on the Joan Rivers show. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now you said you don't want to 
be a man. I used to be a 24-7. I used to drag all the time. 24 hours a day, 24 hours, 7 days a week. What a great term. Okay. Right. Yeah. But as I found that I don't need it, I have more fun being a guy in the daytime and dressing up as a girl at night. Because I've always loved Elizabeth Taylor. And, and she does the same thing. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Wow, Pepper LaBeja and Joan Rivers, it's like history. Yeah, it's a, it's quite a pairing. And it's so funny to that term 24-7 that we all, I mean, that's a term that has gone into the straight world as well. Like that's just a <laughs> universally used term. But to hear it brought back to um, its origins, what do you make of the sort of um, the way that Paris is burning and everything that that sort of brought to our attention has informed everything since like it looms so large in terms of its influence on pop culture that that followed it what's what place does that film occupy for you and what's your reading on it I mean that was a film that the first time I saw it and I must have been maybe in in high school or, or in my first years of college I think when you first see that film if you've never seen it and you're in touch with pop culture it's it's a real reckoning to recognize the extent to which so much of of what passes for you know language and gay culture and and attitude has its roots in that world and and even you know to say nothing of Vogue itself and Madonna and um it inspires great reverence for me. And I think that that clip, especially, I mean, Pepper LaBeja like was so free and, and the unwillingness to be defined. And, you know, I think that it's unfortunate when especially white gay men become overly reliant on those signifiers, you know, linguistically, especially and, and language wise without also, you know, expressing reverence and, and knowledge of where it came from. So what do you think kids today can take from watching um, a, a movie like Paris is Burning, a documentary like Paris is Burning? Do you think they, they can be like, oh, so much has changed or we're still living the same? I mean, uh, I think that I mean, any kid that watches Paris is Burning today that also watches RuPaul's Drag Race will recognize mm -hmm. the, the, long, the, the tradition that that Drag Race partakes in. You know, I think that Drag Race has introduced it's one thing about white gay men talking about that. But now I think the, you know, Drag Race's biggest fan base can be like teenagers and teenage girls. So now you have like teenage girls across America talking about like shade and reading. And I feel like that's an even more interesting study of like how subculture becomes repackaged by capitalism, you can say, or by entertainment and makes it more palatable or um, attractive to an audience that would have never come across it in the first place. And I think there's a lot of interesting issues around that and, and, you know, some more problematic than others. And, and it can be viewed as a good thing, but also a thing that maybe is curious, especially if the people that are originating that culture continue to live, you know, in the threat of violence and impoverished and, and can't make livings for themselves. So I think it's it's it would be in the in the clip Pepper LaBeja mentions uh, the fantasy of being Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> and uh, so before we get to the clip, like what what does what does Elizabeth Taylor mean to you or what what does that fantasy mean to you today? I think that Elizabeth Taylor in this clip is, will show it very well. I think that in the kind of the pantheon, she as survivor is um, is what comes across most and how she's so beautiful and so glamorous and yet has had these terrible kind of abject experiences. So I think that's why she occupies a really special place. Let's listen. 
lot of people who are in the public eye and have been in the public eye a long time. But you've endured, and there's been this fascination. Have you ever considered why that is? A lot of other people just fade away. You haven't. Why do they still have the public fascination? I don't know. Uh, I think perhaps it's because I am a survivor. And I'm like a living example of, of what people can go through and survive. Yeah. I've had the lowest valleys, the highest highs. Um, I've had a lot of tragedy in my life. I've had addictions. I've had weight problems. Yeah. I've uh, almost died a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, I've been pronounced dead. So, you know, it's like... That's true. You were, it was in London, were you not? I've read my own obituaries. They were the best reviews I ever had. <laughs> so that was Elizabeth Taylor with Johnny Carson in 1992. Tom, have you ever been pronounced dead? I have not been pronounced dead, but there's a, that, that clip brings to mind, a, there's a quote from All About Eve, um, where, uh, Margot Channing's assistant, she says, what a story, everything but bloodhounds slapping at her, snapping at her rear end, you know, and it's just like to hear the a tremendous amount that this woman went through is just, I think really it's, it's, it, it's inspiring, but it's also funny just to hear her lay it out that way. Yeah, it really is. Um, do, I mean, I guess like, do you. A lot of people try to figure out what what it is about the connection between gay men in particular, but I think the queer community at large with these sort of iconic, you know, women who have survived it all. I think, you know, it's there's always this sort of attempt to figure out what is the underlying root of this connection. Do you think you've figured it out? I mean, you know, I think that it's a, it's a big question and I think it's just where we see ourselves reflected back and these women, you know, be it Elizabeth or Cher, or, I mean, Judy Garland, who we haven't talked about or Liza, like women who survive and in sometimes some cases don't survive challenging circumstances in which, you know, the world of men sees fit to kind of like pull them apart and, and, you know, make them feel unworthy and for them to triumph and be tremendously talented other way, I think just provides inspiration and makes people feel less alone and that their own struggles are, um, you know, in the same way that, you know, in, I could speak as a, as a lapsed Catholic, but like in Catholicism, you're, view, you're encouraged to see, you know, Jesus's suffering as a mirror for your own worldly suffering. And I think that with these divas, there's a way to do that as well. It kind of place them in this pantheon and pray to them in a way for strength or for inspiration or to have them make us laugh or be entertained. And that becomes a kind of antidote to the worldly suffering that we all face across our community. As some might say, yes, Gaga. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Tom, for taking the time to do this with us and to sort of go through these clips. Happy Thank you Pride. guys so much for having me. I, I appreciate it so much. And now it's time for our favorite part of the show, <laughs> the credits. Chosen Family is produced by me, Thomas LeBlanc. And me, Trana Winter. Aiden McMahon edits and mixes the show. Nantalian Dongo is our contributing producer. Judy Zigu is our digital producer. Tina Verma is our senior producer. And Arif Narani is the executive producer of CBC Podcasts. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Phi Studio. 
We are recording this season at Tomei Park Studio. And of course, listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening on Apple, leave us a five-star rating. We haven't gotten one of those in a little while. <laughs> and I kind of have a craving for one. So please do that. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.